Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is New Books and Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, we're speaking with Gina Rippon, author of the book, Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds, published in 2020 by Vintage Books. Gina Rippon is an honorary professor of cognitive neuroimaging at Aston Brain Center at Aston University in Birmingham, England, Her research involves the use of -of state-of-the-art brain imaging techniques to investigate developmental disorders such as autism. In 2015, she was made an honorary fellow of the British Science Association for her contributions to the public communication of science. Ribbon is part of the European Union Gender Equality Network, belongs to the WISE and Science Girl, and is a member of Robert Peston's Speakers for Schools program and the Inspiring the Future Initiative. She lives in the United Kingdom, and I'd like to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Gina. Thank you very much for having me. So can you start by telling us how this book came about? Yes. I mean, my work, as you mentioned, uh, is as a a cognitive neuroimager. So I work in a brain imaging center, and my research is focusing on children with autism uh, and adolescents. And one of the things I was really interested in was the amount of variability in the uh, participants that I was scanning. So, you know, there's a great saying in the autism community, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So I was really intrigued to find out what made brains different, because a lot of brain imaging, the history of brain imaging is, is really collecting lots and lots of examples of brains carrying out a particular task. Um, or brains from different groups of people and averaging them together. But I was more interested in in finding out what made brains different. Um, And in fact, I was originally going to call the book Fifty Shades of Grey Matter, but the uh, um, publishers thought perhaps that lacked gravitas. So, um, and also was trying to encompass too much. So I focused on, on looking at sex differences in the brain because that was and still is, I have to say, one of the most well-entrenched belief, um, both in, in public understanding of science and, them, and, and ourselves, uh, and in science itself, that um, there are differences between male and female brains. For some people, they're firmly fixed in a sort of biological determinist um, arena. And for other people, it may be more to do with what's happening in the outside world. Uh, so, I focused on that. I looked at the history of research into this question, which was a bit eye-opening, and looked at how it had been addressed once we had proper brain imaging techniques, which allowed us to look at intact living human brains and intact living humans, and looked at how that research had been used and looked at where it's where it's taken us today and a bit about where it might take us in the future. So I'm glad that you mentioned your research into 
uh, or, or your investigation into the research that's already been done into sex differences. In the beginning chapters of the book, you document how for over a century, scientists studying the brain were desperately trying to find evidence in the brain to support what they'd already decided was true, which is that men were superior to women. How did you feel when you first became aware of this? And is this still a problem in brain science today? <laughs> uh, well, I have to say, and, and choosing some of the more outrageous quotes that I put in the book, generally it made me laugh. Uh, and it's it's amazing that you can think that um, scientists like Charles Darwin, one of the greatest scientists ever, had very firmly fixed belief that women were inferior. And so the whole of brain science from the beginning, as you quite rightly pointed out, was a sort of reverse engineering. So scientists looked at male, scientists looked at uh, the status quo in society and said women are inferior. And we believe this must arise from their brains. So so let's find a technique um, which proves this inferiority. And the early techniques were actually with the benefit of hindsight, pretty hilarious, measuring, filling an empty skull with birdseed and weighing it to see how big the the brain that had been in it might have been, or feeling bumps on the head, etc. So at one point, you can sort of, from the, with the benefit, as I say, of hindsight, laugh at it. But then it started to become slightly more, um, I think it, it was more a sort of prescriptive so that it moved on from women being inferior because of the inferiority of the skills that their brain gave them to women having different skills, complementary skills, and this is what's called the complementarity trap, that they had particular kinds of skills which ideally suited them to be a good wife and mother. So you started to get the kind of rather uneasy view that there was some kind of manipulation going on here. Um, and one of my chapters is called Inside Her Pretty Little Head, because this was very much the idea that, that science was at that point looking for women who had a, a pre-designated role in society, and that was to be a womanly companion to man and a good wife and mother. So I started getting uneasy at that stage. I, as a, a, a psychologist, as well as a physiologist, I was aware that psychology, experimental psychology, had um, a, a pretty important role in developing what I called the go-to list of, of what differentiated males from females. So psychology joined brain science in this determined hunt the difference agenda. So the starting point was always that there was a difference both in brains and in the behavior they caused. And science was really focused on finding that difference. So when I revisited what uh, the beginning of sort of um, 2010, looking to see how 15 years or so of brain imaging had addressed the question of male-female differences, I was really alarmed to see how the science that I was involved in, of which I was terribly proud and and, and it was amazing to see it being so well covered in the press and, and people eager to find out what neuroscientists were doing. And then realizing how this neuroscience was being hijacked, still in the name of this hunt the difference agenda and the classic, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus type, what I call unpopularly, neurotrash. So with your book, uh, you're, you're clearly offering 
a critique of this kind of science, but are you are you critiquing the methods by which sex differences have been studied, or are you critiquing, taking issue with the very fact of uh, studying sex differences at all? In other words, do you believe that there that this is even a meaningful line of inquiry, or are you critiquing that too? Great question. Yes. Um, I'll take the second half first, actually, the idea that if you criticise the idea that there is such a thing as the male or the female brain, therefore, you don't believe that there are any sex differences in the brain. And I've been called a sex difference denier in the same tone of voice as climate change denier. And as I've said, you know, presumably with the same consequences for human civilization. So, I think the idea is this is a really important question. There are, it is really important to understand the undoubted gender gaps in the world to almost, if you like, do what the um, 18th, 19th century scientists were doing and saying, let's have a look at society and let's have a look at the incidence of mental health problems. Let's have a look at differences in physical illnesses, for example. And if there are sex differences, or it appears that there are sex differences, brings me to the first part of the question, then it's really important that we study them. To get to the first part of the question is the methods are something that I do challenge quite vigorously. Not to say that there's anything wrong or fraudulent with what neuroscientists are doing, but because they're very much focused on a hunt the difference agenda, what they, the only question they ask is, you know, what sex is this um, person that I'm testing on this language task or, or who appears to have some kind of um, personality difference, etc.? Uh, so the methods are limited, I think, by uh, hanging on to this old idea. And now we know much more in the 21st century about how much how much effect the outside world has on brains developing and adult. Then we realise that we need to be asking many more questions. You can't just take a data set, and we now have access to huge data sets, and say, "Oh, let's have a you know just compare the males and females in this data set." And oh, look, there's some differences in size in in this particular. Um, you know, part of the brain, and and this proves everything. Um, so I'm a, a, a methodological. Uh, I have some methodological criticism, um, and uh, but also it's important to uh, realise that we have to ask these questions. It's how we ask them. I think that that I criticise a lot. So could you give us an example of a better question, the the kind of question that questions that science should be asking in this area? Well, the example I very often use is referring to the idea, um, the classic, you know, men are, men are better at map reading type suggestion, supposedly a very robust sex difference, that men are super, have superior spatial skills, the kind of skills that underpin science and map reading, uh, understanding the relationships of different objects in, in, in space. And that has been claimed to be as I say, a robust sex difference and has been used as an explanation for why men are um, much better scientists or why there's more men in science, uh, why men are, you know, there's more men winning Nobel Prizes, etc. And um, 
very often this is pursued uh, by looking at spatial tasks. So you can take a particular task called the mental rotation task, where you take an abstract uh, three-dimensional object and you uh, ask somebody to see if it matches another image which is uh, similar to the um, three-dimensional object and say, is this the same image, the same object, but just rotated, or is it a different a mirror image, etc.? So effectively, you have to mentally imagine this object and rotate it to see if it, if it matches. Supposedly, as I say, a, a very robust difference. And big surveys have shown that men, on average, and that's quite important, and perhaps we'll come back to that, do better than women. And therefore, this is a sex difference, and it's linked to, for example, the effect of prenatal testosterone on the developing brain, and the fact, you know, this is a proof that this is a brain-based process, and therefore, all of the different skills that we have are, are somehow to be found in the brain. But about four or five years ago, a big survey done in the States, which did actually look at a, a compare a large group of males and females on a range of spatial tasks and found, as expected, um, on average, that males did better. But then they pursued other or they asked other questions. For example, what kind of toys did you play with as a child? What kind of hobbies have you got? Is there a spatial element to them? Um, what sports do you play? Uh, what's your occupation even? And so they generated a, a spatial training uh, measure. And they found that when they reanalyzed the data with this spatial training um, factor uh, measure factored in, the sex difference disappeared. So by just asking the question, are these people male or female, they came up with what looked like the traditional robust difference. But when they said, is there anything else about being male or female that might differentiate these people? And they found that video, well, spatial training experiences, right from you know the toys you played with, were um, a key factor. And the women who'd had the same amount of of spatial training experiences, uh, perhaps they played video games as much as as, as the males in the in the cohort, uh, whatever, um, they did as well. So that's quite a good example of finding out that there are other measures that you should be taking into account and that what looks like a sex difference actually isn't a sex difference at all. By, by which I understand you to mean, when you say it's not a sex difference, it's not, it's not a difference attributable to the brain. It sounds in that case like it's more attributable to socialization or how one was raised. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? That's how it could be framed. Um, it, it the, the one thing I claim very hopefully profoundly in the book is that this is still a biological process because now we know that brains are plastic, are flexible, moldable throughout our lives. Um, we know that the kind of experiences we have will change the brain. So these people who were doing better on the spatial task did have different brains from the people who were not doing so well on the spatial task. So still biological, but it wasn't their brains weren't different because they were brains from men or brains from women. They were different because of the different experiences they'd had. And I think that's a really important factor which has been ignored uh, in the whole history of this research until the 21st century, and in fact, quite a lot of the time is still ignored. And one of the things that um, myself and, and colleagues like me have drawn attention to 
is that we really need to understand that we're now looking at a brain which is not at its fixed developmental endpoint when it arrives in the in our labs to scan. It's a brain which has had all sorts of different experiences, which may well be related to the fact that they're male or female. But it may be, for example, that you know boys are more likely to play with construction toys and have spatially based hobbies or, or, or play spatially based sports, etc. Um, so all of those need to be taken into account. And when you do take all this into account, is is the logical endpoint of this that there is no longer any such thing as a female brain versus a male brain? Is is the brain no longer? Does the brain have a gender? Yes, I think they will. <laughs> That could then get us into the do you mean sex or do you mean gender debate. Um, I think there are biologically based differences in the brains from men and the brains from women. And I'm using that term carefully and I'll come back to it um, shortly, uh, which are related to the different roles that the individuals play uh, to be fundamental in the in the reproductive process. Um, different hormone receptors, uh, etc. And I think that's the, the, the kind of sex difference aspect. Um, but I also think there are gender differences because of, if we look in the 21st century, the um, amount of what I call gender bombardment, the kind of effect, experiences and attitudes, which we now know, know will change the brain. The 21st century is very gendered. So the brain... Will the brain will have a gender, and it may well be um, a masculine gender or a feminine gender, because it's more likely that the owner of those brains will have been exposed to the consequences of, of gender stereotypes. And just to come back to the idea of male and female brain, um, this is an area which I've drawn attention to that sometimes language is used a bit carelessly, and uh, there's a book called The Essential Difference by Simon Baron Cohen, where the opening lines are the female brain, so there is a thing, is hardwired, i.e. fixed, for empathy. So we have already have this idea uh, that women are different. The male brain is hardwired for understanding systems and, you know, hence the systemizer, scientist, um, owner of, uh, you know, a, a, a tremendously powerful brain that will solve all sorts of problems, etc. It's not until later in the book he says, of course, you don't have to be a man to have a male brain or a woman to have a female brain. And for me, I think that is perhaps irresponsible use of language because I would imagine that people in the outside world hearing the term male brain, female brain would assume we're talking about the brains from men and the brains from women. And if we come up with sort of profound statements about how they're different, with this kind of essentialist idea that this is an inevitable difference, it's a natural difference, which you probably shouldn't mess around with, um, then you're um, misinforming uh, the people who are listening to you and, and the owners of those brains, indeed. So I'm thinking about our transgender listeners and readers, and I'm wondering what implications do you think that this research has for them? Yep, a very very important question, uh, and I think it comes back to this um, phenomenon that I've talked about before. That you know, the the, the the difference between sex and gender, and 
at the start of this uh, process, this, this history of this question, it was assumed that sex applied to every stage of the process. So you had uh, whatever it was that determined that male and female anatomy was different, so two types of body, also determined that their brains were different, so two types of brain. And those two types of brain gives, gave you two sets of skills or personalities or, or abilities. And those two sets of, of, of that your two portfolios then gave you different roles in society. So, And sex was applied, the term sex was applied to every level those explanations. So it's purely biologically driven uh, in, in a deterministic, one-directional way. And then in these sort of 1980s, people started talking about gender and saying, well, let's have a look at social roles and, and really uh, do men and women do different things because of political, social, economic pressures? And are we actually limiting the potential of both groups by predetermining or preordaining what they should be doing? So gender then became a focus of attention. And now, of course, we use the term gender actually almost in reverse to, to explain every stage of the process. So the term sex is rarely used. We talk about gender reveal parties, for example. And of course, that's not what they are. They're sex reveal parties, uh, although that might make you think of something else. Um, we also have um, gender gender pay gaps, for example. And um, so those two terms, it, almost in the same way as male and female, have, have sort of changed and are sometimes misunderstood. So that's, that, that's a long aspect about sex and gender. But I think with respect to transgender, one of the issues that I've been trying to explain to people is that we really should learn to break this allegedly... Um, uh, unbreakable link between biological sex and social gender. And gender for me is is a social construct, but it's also a personal construct. It's the kind of person you feel you are, where you belong, who you want to relate to, etc. And that is a matter of personal choice and very much can be and probably will be determined by, by what else is, is going on around you. So people who feel uh, a disconnect between the biological sex um, that they were assigned, and I know there's issues around that term at birth, and the person they feel themselves to be, very often say, there must be something wrong with me because I should want to be like this. I should feel like this. I don't feel like that. So in some cases, they feel they have to change their biology because they still believe that there is this um, unbreakable link between sex and gender. So, so if they don't feel they're the gender they think they should be, they think there's something wrong with their biology. But they're still very much um, uh, trying to think of a good word. They're still very much tied to the idea that that gender is is something which is determined by society and not a matter of personal choice. So, I, I think it does have implications, and I think actually the the aspect of you know the the increase in discussion and debate and occurrence of, of transgender issues is to do with how much the 21st century emphasizes the differences between males and females much more than it ever did so if there's a very strong social pressure that you're either one or the other and i think the binary nature is another thing that needs to be challenged um, and you really don't feel that you're the one that you should be, um, then you start questioning uh, your your own identity 
um, and your and your place in the world. So hopefully, getting away from that would um, help people have a, more, a better informed debate discussion about transgender issues. Did you know? Um, and if and if you don't, do you think this is even a worthwhile question? Whether individuals who come to identify as transgender as the gender other than that which they were assigned at birth, if their brains are actually different, show any differences compared to cisgender individuals? Yeah. Um, A a cautious answer to that is yes. Um, Research in this area is is in early stages and and generally is not characterized by um, probably understandably, you know, appropriate methodological control. So there is a fair amount of research, an increasing amount of research, but it is difficult to do, and it's it's um, a lot of it's not well controlled. Some of it is reporting that um, transgender brains are different from cisgender brains. Some of are finding no differences. In terms of what I say, I would say transgender brain naturally will be different because a transgender individual will have had many different types of experiences than those of cisgender individuals. And therefore, yes, their brain will be different. And it's certainly the case that I've had um, transgender individuals approach me and say, could I scan their brain? Um, For example, they want to prove that they've got a a female brain in in a male body. And then I have to say, well, there is no such thing as the female brain. Uh, you know, after decades of research, there is no consistent part of the brain set of brain networks that I, as a neuroscientist, can point to and say that is a female brain. That's from a female brain. That is from a male brain. I couldn't, you know, pick a male out of a the audience and say this is what your brain will look like. Or similarly, a female. So there is no fixed template which says. This is what a female brain is like, which, of course, makes it confusing for people who have, if you like, pinned their hopes on that particular explanation. So, yes, transgender brains will be different, um, but different in different ways from brains from men and brains from women, cisgender men and cisgender women. I want to run by you a way by which I'm sort of synthesizing everything you're saying and, and everything that I've took away from your book, which is that the, the reason why it's, it's no longer so available for us to say, for you to say to your patients, for instance, your brain is a female brain or, or your brain is a male brain, is because once we account for the malleability, the, the, the plasticity of the brain, for the fact that the brain is not a static thing, but that is always changing and always being influenced by its environment, then the brain is no longer the central causal agent of all the other changes that we see, all the other traits that we see in a person. It, it, we suddenly have to think of the brain as existing in a chicken or egg kind of relationship with all the, the other potential causal agents in a person's development, like their social environment mm-hmm. and other factors so that, the brain is as much an effect of other processes as a cause of certain processes. Mm-hmm. Am I getting it right? Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it, actually. Um, because sometimes 
people get, you get drawn back into the old nature versus nurture argument people say oh so you believe it's all nurture and um other people who are very profoundly determinist and say biologists just haven't got all the way to showing how the fact that everything about us is 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 a biologically determined uh, i think what we're now looking at and particularly understanding the plasticity of the brain is is a much more entangled but the brain is a product of um, many more entangled factors. You know, we used to think that there was a very fixed biological template. I mean, the way I put it, as I said, there is a biological template, the the unfolding of a biological script, but it's taking place on a social stage. And that social stage will be different for different individuals. And the way in which that individual is changing will change their brain, which will then change how they interact um, with their environment, with other people. Um, And so thinking about the brain as uh, still, I believe, as as the core of of what we do and who we are, but not as the product of a a predetermined genotype, but as the product of that genotype, but unfolding in in a world which has all sorts of different experiences um, in which individuals will encounter different attitudes because we now know that you know the the brain is a um is is a much more sort of proactive improviser if you like it's 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 looking for rules in the outside world all the time in order to if you like drive its owner appropriately around that world so now we understand that the brain is uh, as i've put it elsewhere um, predictive, like a, a sat nav, if you like high end sat nav, it's plastic, it's flexible, it reflects experiences, and it's permeable. It, it responds differently to the different attitudes it's encountering. So once we take those three P's on board, then we uh, start to realise that we're looking at surprise, surprise, a much more complicated organ than we ever realised. One of the things that I love about your book and why I really recommend it to people is you do such a thorough job of examining the various areas of research into into sex differences and really picking apart the methodological problems of some of these studies and helping the reader to understand how how to consume the research with a with a critical eye. And it makes me want to ask you, you know, given how how much you critique a lot of the research and how, um, you know, what depressing it can be at times to own, to think about all the flaws. I wonder what is your hope? What's your biggest hope for the future? Um, or what's your what's the one corrective you think we need to implement in this line of research for the future? I think it would be great if it was a much more collaborative enterprise, if um, there wasn't a big focus on um, this is where I'm, you know, this is this is the theory, if you like, this is the this is the end product I want to arrive at. I'd like scientists to go back to be being more exploratory and also for science as a whole to say um, that that not finding a difference, for example, particularly in the area I'm interested in, is as interesting as finding a difference. So if we um, then say um, you have to pre-register 
the uh, experiment that you're going to run, and that's something which is now emerging because of problems of people being unable to replicate really quite famous studies, which have become well-established as explaining things. Then you've got to tell us how you're going to analyze your data. You've got to report all the findings that you come across. And if, for example, you find that men's and women's brains are more similar than they are different, then you need to report that as well. Um, So I think being much more open about the scientific process and actually revealing you know, not necessarily a nice, neat, tidy story, which are the only ones that get published, but so, but but saying actually this is quite a messy area <laughs> to do research into, um, and this is what we found so far, uh, and and being honest and 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 also saying to people, um, you know, there are there are different ways of asking the same question, and don't get entrenched in in your own particular set of viewpoints. Gina. I recommend the book to everybody. Like I said, it's there's so many things in it that we didn't get to cover. Uh, before we run out of time, would you mind telling us what you're working on now? Right. Okay. Well, uh, the autism work continues, um, and it is right at the sort of technical end, looking, if you like, listening to the language of the autistic brain, looking at different brain frequencies. And in fact, linking it to the whole issue of the brain being predictive and saying perhaps one of the problems that individuals with autism have is that their brain isn't very good at establishing what's going to happen next or or how the social world works. And that causes the behavioural problems which get them identified as as being on the spectrum. So measuring that at at, at, at a very technical level. But it's also linked uh, in a strange way to where where the two areas of my work come together because an emerging um, fact uh, in in the autism world is that autism has always been described as a male problem. many higher uh, higher numbers of boys and men get identified as autistic or on the spectrum than females and that's again linked back to the history of, of how autism was described at the beginning and it's now becoming clear that there are very many girls and women on the spectrum, who have been undiagnosed for many, many years. Uh, I'm working with people in their 40s who've only just been identified as on the spectrum um, and have suffered all sorts of behavioural problems, undiagnosed problems, mistreated uh, problems which were treated inappropriately um, until it was noticed that actually they, they ticked all the boxes for being on the spectrum, except for the one that they were female. So understanding that, I think, is important. Um, And it may be that autism expresses itself differently in females, which, you know, the eagle-eared listeners will mean I'm acknowledging a particular kind of sex difference. Um, But that's something we're exploring. Um, And I'm also looking at, I mean, the, the model I talked about in the brain, the particular way in which we have networks in the brain which make us social and a very powerful part of that network is the kind of uh, what I call an inner limiter or a sort of breaking system where brains will inhibit behavior which uh, doesn't fit in with the expected uh, rules or identities of the owner of that brain and I'm looking to see if there are kind of pathological consequences of that so for example in mental health a much higher instance of, of depression, uh, eating disorders, self-harm, anxiety in females 
than males. And it would be, um, and what I'm exploring is whether or not this is in some way linked to the gendered expectations which shape the brain um, and which could tip an individual in, into a pathological mode of behavior. Well, those sound like really great projects. And I think the world is a lot better because you're doing that kind of research, um, particularly your Thank research you. into uh, sex differences in autism and the and the manifestations of autism for women in particular, um, or a condition that I guess has always been understood as, as a male condition. I want to thank you again for coming on the show and remind our readers that I've been talking to Gina Rippon, and the name of her book is Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. Gina, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.